South Dakotans, welcome to the Dakota Rustler Show, aiming to keep America, its citizens, and minds free. Now, here's your host, Daryl Root. Hello, and welcome to the Dakota Rustler Show, another episode. As you could see on the screen during the intro, or read the title if you're listening on the audio, today's subject is Missing Indigenous Women, or more specifically, Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. I am your host, Daryl Root, and we have a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. Today I'll be reading excerpts from an article called Searching for Savannah by Mona Gable. Mona Gable is a native of California whose roots are in Oklahoma. Her grandmother was a citizen of the Chickasaw tribe. She is a freelance journalist who writes frequently about gender injustice and the environment. And her work has appeared in such magazines as The Atlantic, The New York Times, Outside, Pacific Standard, which this article comes from, and many other publications. Her reporting for this story was supported by a grant from Solutions Journalism Network. And this is an article on Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. So let's get right to that. I'll put up the chalkboard. And let's go. Savannah LaFontaine Greywind is eight months pregnant, a beautiful indigenous woman of 22. Savannah has a lot to do today. Just before 10 a.m., she has to pick up her 18-year-old sister, Kayla, and drive her to work. And later, her 16-year-old brother, Casey, has to be dropped off for his job at a car wash. She can hear her mother, Norberta, who works at the Family Dollar, flutter around her basement apartment, gathering laundry and cleaning. Tomorrow, her mom is giving her a baby shower. Along with her father and her 20-year-old brother, Joe Jr., they all live in a white three-story apartment building in a quiet working-class neighborhood with 1960s housing complexes. On this particular Saturday morning, according to court documents, a neighbor, Brooke Cruz, pokes her head through an open apartment door. She is 38 years old and lives on the third floor with a guy named William Hohen. The two of them often shop at the dollar store where Noberta works. They are friendly to her, but otherwise their lives usually do not intersect. When Savannah comes to the door, Cruz asks Savannah if she can help with a sewing project. Cruz offers to pay her $20. At 1.23 p.m., Savannah sends her mother a brief text saying she has ordered a pizza for the family for lunch. She tells another family member that she's going upstairs to do a job for Cruz. One minute later, she also texts Ashton, the baby's father, and her boyfriend before she goes to apartment 5. Lo and behold, she never comes back. This is August 19th. Five days later, after a third voluntary search of apartment 5 still uncovers no sign of Savannah, and no evidence of a crime, Fargo police obtain a no-knock search warrant. On August 24th at 2 p.m., they break in with a battering ram. Inside, they find Cruz. They also discover a tiny newborn girl. 
Cruz is arrested and her boyfriend Hone is picked up at work. Remember, Savannah was eight months pregnant at this time. The baby, which eventually is determined to be Savannah's, is alive and safe, but how can that be? Savannah wasn't due for more than a month. In the upcoming days, Cruz tells various stories to investigators as detailed in court documents. She doesn't deny that the baby belongs to Savannah, but she claims that Savannah abandoned her little girl. She says Savannah was unhappy with her family and with Ashton. She didn't want the baby, so she convinced Cruz to induce childbirth and begged her to keep the infant. She then insists that Savannah ran away. That afternoon, police emerge from the apartment with a baby girl. Until Ashton's paternity can be confirmed by DNA tests, the baby will remain in the custody of Cass County Social Services. Ashton has already been denied the usual rites of passage into fatherhood, such as seeing his daughter born, cradling her moments after, taking photos of her with Savannah. Now, as Savannah's relatives quietly gather in the front yard of the apartment building, Ashton has to watch as the baby is transported to Sanford's Children's Hospital. The family is full of fear as to what's going to happen with the child. Savannah is a member of the Spirit Lake tribe, her mother a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians, clustered in northeast North Dakota. A Facebook post with Savannah's picture and physical details goes up quickly. Tribes across the Great Plains sweep into Fargo, ready to comb the parks, the fields, the Red River, all the way to Manitoba, Canada, if necessary. They burn sage, hold vigils, pray for her safety and well-being. Hundreds of non-natives in the Fargo community and beyond pray and join the search. Where is Savannah? But before we answer that, let's move on to some legal issues. As it turns out, she is one of an estimated nearly 6,000 indigenous women and girls that go missing every year. Few of the women in the FBI's accounting were logged into the Department of Justice's Federal Missing Persons Database, a resource that allows law enforcement agencies to share information. Although the 2015 Tribal Access Program was supposed to help tribes get access to NCIC, that has been slow to happen. As of 2019, only 47 of 573 federally recognized tribes in the U.S., that's only 10%, not even, were participating, due in part to the cost associated with updating computers. That and trust in white man. It means that many crimes go unreported and tribal investigators have a limited, a limited ability to pull up information on potential suspects. So many cases go unsolved or worse, un uninvestigated. The cost isn't supposed to be a hurdle. The U.S. Crime Victims Fund, a pot of billions of dollars drawn entirely from fines and penalties incurred by offenders, is intended to make resources available to local police forces for these updates, and is supposed to pay for preventive and supportive services. But every year, tribes have had to fight for their share, mostly because tribes must rely on the states to disperse the money. It doesn't come directly to them. 
According to a Department of Justice report released in 2017, other females in 2010 through 2014, state government are murdered only in 10% of the available funds. Nearly one in three Native American and Alaska Native women will experience rape or attempted rape in her lifetime. Native women also suffer intolerably higher rates of physical violence. 90% of it committed by non-Native intimate partners. It is often perceived as an easier-to-get-away-with crime on reservations because there is a lack of adequate policing and lack of tribal jurisdiction. A 1978 Supreme Court case, Oliphant v. Squamish Indian Tribe, stripped tribes of their authority to punish non-Natives on tribal lands. In my opinion, this is wrong. Anywhere else in this country, you are tried where you are accused. Why not Indian land? Say a native woman is sexually assaulted. Where did it happen? On the reservation or off? If her attacker is native and it occurred on the reservation, then tribal police and tribal courts have jurisdiction. If her attacker is non-native, then the FBI or state investigators have priority. If she is assaulted off the reservation, the state is supposed to act. There's a whole list of regulations dictating which enforcement agency, federal, state, or tribal, is supposed to act. As for felonies like murder, rape, and kidnapping, if they happen on tribal lands, the Department of Justice is supposed to prosecute, but it often doesn't. In recent years, the Department of Justice has prosecuted in only about half of murder cases on reservations and in a little over a third of cases of sexual assault. In 2017, under mounting pressure to address this crisis, the department still declined more than one-third of cases referred to them by reservation authorities. But back to Savannah. More than 200 people showed up to search for her. Firefighters from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians, members of the Standing Rock Tribe, North Dakota college students, suburban moms, and others. People fanned out along the Red River to search the water. That Sunday afternoon, Buffalo, a citizen of the Mandan Tribe, returned to headquarters, set up in Mickelson Park, and started checking in volunteers and assigning people to teams. Sometime between 3 and 5 p.m., a flurry of news erupted. A woman searching hardwood had seen a breast pump and a torrent of blood outside a farmstead. A volunteer drove Buffalo back to the site. The suspense was excruciating. As people waited, law enforcement scoured the farmstead for evidence of Savannah. We were still hoping she was alive somehow, Buffalo told me, but there was nothing there. Then at 5.45, as the sun began to set, some kayakers paddling in the Red River up north near Harwood spotted something in the murky water. A thing wrapped inside plastic trash bags and duct tape caught on a log. By the time it was pulled from the strong currents by law enforcement at 8.20 p.m., the sky was turning dark. An hour or so later, though, it was confirmed. The body inside was that of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. She is now one of the staggering numbers of Native American women and girls across the country who have been murdered or who have gone missing and are presumed dead. But at least Savannah came home, so to speak. She is rare. Many of these women are never found.
In December of 2017, Cruz pleaded guilty to murdering Savannah and in February of 2018 was scheduled for sentencing. Supporters of Savannah's family packed the Cass County courtroom. Celebrity attorney Gloria Allred was there, an advocate for Savannah's parents. Before court, she took Joe and Noberta Greywind into her room. She wanted to prepare them for what they might hear in the courtroom. She explained for the first time how their pregnant daughter had died. And I'll continue with the gory details of what happened after our bell tells you about Camp Ridger seasonings. And a warning to parents, you may want to remove young children for the next section. If you enjoy grilling and cooking, Camp Ridger seasonings are for you. All four blends are salt-free and designed to enhance the flavor of food, not bury it. The popular four-pack can be purchased and shipped anywhere in the continental U.S. for around 33 bucks, depending on your state's sales tax rate. Visit our sponsor's website at CampRidger.com or CampRidger.net for more information. Anything Dakota Rustler related can be found at dakotarustler.org. There, you will find links to audio and video versions of the latest episodes. You can also support the show through purchase of merchandise, donations, or sponsorship. Sponsors will be recognized on air and or the website. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. Shortly after Savannah went upstairs to apartments... Five, Savannah was savagely murdered. In one version given to authorities, Cruz provoked a fight, shoved Savannah, who fell and hit her head on the bathroom sink. But how Savannah was really subdued still remains a mystery. Cruz then fetched a sharp instrument. As Savannah lay there, Cruz sliced her from hip to hip, pried out her eight-month-old fetus. She put Savannah's infant in the bathtub on a towel. Savannah was alive, floating in and out of consciousness, supposedly. Owen, Cruz's boyfriend, then returned home from work to the sound of something strange, the sound of a baby. Behind the bathroom door, he found Savannah, a bloody cocoon on the floor. What the fuck, he said. She was still, her skin pale, her lips blue. On a towel in a bathtub was a newborn girl. This is our baby. This is our family, Cruz said. She had already picked out a name for her, Phoenix. Cruz told investigators that Hohen took one look at Savannah and asked, Is she dead? I don't know, Cruz remembers answering. Please help me. Cruz testified that Hohen went to get a rope and wrapped it around Savannah's neck, making sure that she was dead. Owen disputes Cruz's account. He claims that he never strangled Savannah and that she was already dead when he arrived. Owen admits that he did discard the body, bloody shoes and towels from the crime in a Fargo dumpster and tossed a hollowed-out dresser with Savannah's body wrapped in plastic trash bags into the Red River. The article gets into a lot of details about the trial, which I'll skip due to time constraints, but as I said before, she is one of many who go missing. One of those speaking at a conference on missing women was Amanda Takes Warbonnet, a public education specialist for the Native Woman Society of the Great Plains. The society is a grassroots organization that focuses on sexual assault 
dating violence and sex trafficking. I had an aunt who went missing years ago when I was a child, she said. I saw the trauma my mother went through. They couldn't find her body for so long. Her husband killed her. That was part of my testimony, seeing the frustration of families when they have somebody go missing. There's such a lack of responsibility from law, from tribal law enforcement. Other cases she mentioned include Emily Bluebird, a 24-year-old Lakota woman. She, fa- she vanished from Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. It was almost three weeks before she was unearthed in January of 2016, strangled. Her family found her partially buried near a creek. July of 2018, Elizabeth Ann LeBeau was sentenced to 25 years in prison for second-degree murder. Red Quiver, an accessory to the murder, pleaded guilty and got 15 years. She mentioned Larissa Lonehill, 21-year-old Lakota woman, mother of a two-year-old daughter, last seen in Rapid City, South Dakota, on October 3, 2016. When Larissa went missing, it was between reservation land and state land. She went into Rapid City, then she went missing. We have no idea where she could be. She mentioned Olivia Lone Bear, a 32-year-old mother of five and member of the three affiliated tribes. She disappeared from Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota on October 24, 2017. She was last seen leaving the sportsman's bar in Newtown in a teal-colored pickup truck. On October 27th, Olivia's family reported her missing, but tribal police didn't begin searching until November 1st, four days later. Although the Lone Bear family repeatedly asked law enforcement agencies to search Lake Sacagawea, it didn't occur until late spring, half a year later. After no progress by tribal police, law enforcement from nearby counties, or legions of volunteers, the Bureau of Indian Affairs took over in January of 2018. On July 31st, half a year after that, Olivia's truck was pulled from Lake Sacagawea only a mile from her home. In a new documentary film called Say Her Name, it exposes Bighorn County, Montana. The county, which includes parts of the Crow and Northern Cheyenne Reservation, has been called an epicenter of MMIWG cases by the Sovereign Bodies Institute. The documentary peels back the layer of injustices that have become standard operating procedures for authorities with jurisdictional responsibility. The film features the cases of Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, Henny Scott, Selena Not Afraid, and Christy Woodenthigh. Law enforcement and a Bighorn County attorney were provided with multiple opportunities to comment and share their perspectives for the documentary. To no one's one's surprise, all declined. Produced by the Cachada tribe of Louisiana, Say Her Name will be available online free of charge, and I'm sorry, but I do not have that website for that. Before I conclude, I just want to add a few other facts. Indigenous women suffer rape and other sexual violence at over twice the rate of non-Hispanic whites and 80% suffer some type of domestic violence. More women are raped than go to college. 
While the indigenous peoples make up 6.7% of Montana's population, they make up 26% of all those missing in the state. Many of the, many of the missing are written off as deaths due to exposure, suicide, and other non-suspicious accidents. In those under 45, homicide is the third leading cause of death among indigenous men and the sixth leading cause for indigenous women. The Crow Nation is the size of Connecticut, but only has five Bureau of Indian Affairs officers. Again, around 6,000 women and girls go missing each year. When we talk of genocide, most people think of the Holocaust. Few people think of what we did to the indigenous peoples of our own country, from killing them off to reneging on all the treaties we signed with those we didn't. Maybe if Whitey, which I'm ashamed to be at certain times, would have been a little more humane 150 years ago, perhaps the native culture wouldn't be in the shape it's in today. Even worse, they still can't trust us today. A hundred years has changed nothing. Today, as the drum beats conclude for another show, let them beat for all the murdered and missing. You know the mantra. Be safe and always be free. Catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Dakota Rustler Show, a production of DL Root. All rights reserved by DL Root, Buzzsprout.com, and their shared partners. Unauthorized use is prohibited. This show is sponsored by Camp Bridger Seasonings. Products available at CampBridger.net.